So what's the difference between a piece of coal and a diamond? Well, of course, there's the money difference, right? One costs more than the other. But what's the material difference between them? It's actually pressure, intense pressure and heat. Do you know that both coal and diamonds are made of the same element, carbon? They're both pieces of carbon. And yet one has gone through an intense pressure and heat. So what happens is diamonds are formed deep beneath the earth's surface, about 100 miles down uh, into the upper mantle. And it's there where temperatures can reach uh, 2200 degrees Fahrenheit. Now that is intense. I mean, we can't go down there. You just melt, right? And the weight, the pressure, with the, with the weight of overlaying rock bearing down on that carbon creates pressure at 725,000 pounds per square inch. 725,000 pounds per square inch. And so when those conditions are met, the, the carbon atom begins to attach itself to four other carbon atoms in a tetrahedral structure. You can look that up later. And then they attach themselves to other little tetrahedral carbon structures. And it's that structure that creates the strength of the diamond. If these conditions are met, the 2200 degrees Fahrenheit and the 725,000 pounds per square inch, a diamond will form. But if those conditions are not met, a diamond will not form. It's not simply that if it's just under those, it's kind of like a crummy diamond, you know, like a not-so-good one or low quality or small in size. It's that without those conditions, a diamond will not form. This morning as we look at Genesis 42, we see that where the famine is underway and the pressure begins to mount. Ten of Jacob's sons are going to travel to Egypt in order to secure grain for their family in order to survive the famine. In fact, Jacob says it's a matter of life and death. That's the kind of pressure that we don't often feel. And it's under these circumstances that create intense pressure and heat for Jacob and his sons. And as you might imagine, it's not pleasant. It's not easy. It's not comfortable. But it's necessary in order for their faith to be formed in order for it to come to completion, in order for God to uh, draw out the kind of character that they're going to need as the future leaders of the nation of Israel. As we work our way through Genesis 42 this morning, we're going to see three things. The first, we'll see how God uses pressure to draw our brokenness to the surface. Oftentimes we're able to bury that down, but pressure can draw that brokenness to the surface. And in this movement, we're going to really look at Joseph's brothers. See, the circumstances of the famine and their trip to Egypt, their confrontation with their brother is going to create an environment of pressure where they're forced to face the guilt from their past head on. Second, we'll see how God uses pressure to reveal our fears. Not only does, does it draw our brokenness to the surface, but it reveals our fears. So in this movement, we want to focus in on Jacob, and the father of these sons. At the beginning and end of this chapter, we're going to see that Jacob is never really healed from losing Joseph. And that bitterness has caused him to live his life by fear instead of living by faith. 
And third, we'll see our third movement. God uses pressure to extend his grace. It's often in these pressurized movements that we see God's grace shining the brightest. And in this movement, we want to focus on Joseph. As we've seen throughout the chapters of uh, 37 to now, we've seen Joseph already going through this life of intense pressure. And it's because of that that his character really shines um, in this story as he extends God's grace. So here's our outline for this morning. We'll see that first God uses pressure to draw our brokenness to the surface. Then we'll see how God uses pressure to reveal our fears. Finally, we'll see how God uses pressure to extend his grace. Let's hear again the word of the Lord in verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? He said, Behold, I've heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. Ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. So in these first few verses, we get the setting. We find out that the famine has now reached into this promised family in the promised land. And news of grain for sale in Egypt prompts Jacob to send his sons to buy grain that they may live and not die. Jacob says, why are you guys looking at each other? Why are you sitting down? It's a matter of life and death. You need to go do something. And I'm not sure any of us really have a category of experience to understand what's going on uh, right now. There is no food anywhere. It's not that there's not the food that they like. It's that there's no food anywhere. So the shelves are empty at Costco and BJ's. There's nothing at Market Basket, nothing at Shaw's and Star Market, nothing at Trader Joe's and Whole Foods. There's no Food anywhere. I don't know that any of us have ever experienced anything quite like that. And the only place they can go for food is in Egypt. And Egypt's not around the corner either. Egypt is 200 miles one way. There's no cars, there's no trains. It's a two-week journey on foot. It's not safe. I mean, just imagine, right, if it's famine... And you're coming back with grain. Think about how vulnerable that would make you to be robbed, to be beat up. Because it's a literal matter of life and death. And so Jacob sends ten of his sons down to Egypt to buy grain. And if you've been tracking and you're doing the math, you're going, well, hold on. Now, Joseph, Jacob had twelve sons. Joseph, we know, is in Egypt. He sends ten. But doesn't he have eleven sons left? Notice who he doesn't send. He does not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, for he feared that harm might come to him. Now, if you remember, Benjamin and Joseph are brothers of their beloved sons of, of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. Remember when, when Jacob sees Rachel, it's as if his whole world stops and everything is just focused on her. And then he has other wives and these other ten sons become kind of second class sons. Remember when Jacob is going to confront Esau and he's not sure what Esau is going to do? Like, is he, has he forgotten about the whole stealing the birthright thing? And he wonders if, if Esau is going to start picking off people in his family. 
You remember who he sends to the front lines? He sends his other wives and their sons, and he keeps Rachel and Joseph and Benjamin back, right? He keeps them back just so that if, if, you know, if things get out of hand, the second-class citizens get the brunt of the violence. And you've seen this progression throughout his life where there's this focus on Rachel and her children. It's caused all kinds of, of father wounds. It's, it, it's part of the story of why his brothers betray Joseph in the first place. They're jealous of this favoritism. Jacob wasn't shy about his favorites. And in the 20 years since Joseph's apparent death, Jacob has grown distrustful of the ten and more protective of his only beloved son. To Jacob, this is all he's got left of Rachel. At best, he considers the ten responsible for Joseph's death because they didn't adequately provide for his safety. And at worst, he's suspicious of them. He suspects that there's more to the story than he was told. But either way, he doesn't trust them And the father wounds in this family just continue. I mean, think about what that communicates to the ten. Hey guys, you're going to go on this perilous journey. Some of you may die. But it's a matter of life and death. And so you've got to go. You guys are expendable. But Benjamin is not. So Benny's going to stay home. And you guys go. Come what may. So the plot's in motion. You can just feel the tension and the pressure as the ten set out to Egypt to buy grain. Verse 6. Now Joseph was governor over the land. Remember last week, Joseph is like vice pharaoh. He's risen to second in command. And he was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. And Joseph saw his brothers and he recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and he spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. If you remember from last week, under Joseph's leadership, as the the, the years of plenty came, Joseph built storehouses all over the different cities in the land of Egypt so that they could store all the grain. And he came up with this organized system for the selling and distribution of the grain. And clearly, you've got all these different cities and storehouses. Joseph can't be in all of them all at once. He can't man every stall. And so he's, he's kind of set up this system for buying and selling of grain. And wouldn't you know that Joseph's brothers show up in the exact city where Joseph happens to be amidst all of the other people. You've got to imagine the scene There's thousands upon thousands of people coming to buy grain. Everyone from all over is coming. And yet, despite the massive amounts of people that are there, they come to the place where Joseph is, and Joseph happens to to see his brothers. And they come up to him. And providentially, they find themselves face-to-face with their long-lost, sold-into-slavery brother. Now, we're supposed to see this with the eyes of faith and recognize this isn't mere happenstance. It's not coincidental. It's providential. Literally, everything about this story is being orchestrated by the sovereign hand of God to bring about God's plan. And when the brothers step into the presence of Joseph, what do they do? They bow down before him with their faces to the ground. If you remember... It's been 20 years 
since Joseph had those dreams. And now the pieces of the puzzle are starting to take shape as Joseph's dreams become a reality. And we're told that Joseph recognizes his brothers, but they don't recognize him. You see, they would have looked pretty similar, right? There might be a little more gray in their beards, but they would have looked pretty much the same, in the same garb, with the same setup. But Joseph looks very different than, the, than they would have seen him. He's, he's gone through uh, manhood. His, 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 uh, they wouldn't have had a beard. The Egyptians were clean-shaven kind of people. He would have been wearing all this Egyptian regalia instead of his infamous robe when they saw him last. And not to mention in their mind, if Joseph is alive, which is a big if, he's probably a slave somewhere in someone's household. And so contextually, they're just not thinking that this guy is going to be their brother. They don't have a category in their mind for the journey that Joseph has been on. And so Joseph uh, begins to speak roughly to them and treat them like strangers. Verse 9. And Joseph remembered the dreams he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You've come uh, to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We're honest men. And your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you've come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the son of uh, one man in the land of Canaan. Behold, the youngest this day is with our father, and, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. And so as the scene unfolds, Joseph remembers his dreams from his teenage years. Now imagine him for a moment. This is all kind of catching him off guard. On one hand, he is standing face to face with the brothers. The ones who, 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 who callously, viciously sold him into slavery. The ones who, because of their jealousy, have now subjected him to years of suffering and affliction. The ones who separated him from his father. The ones who betrayed him for a few pieces of silver. No doubt he felt anger. No doubt he felt revenge. I mean, just a swirl of emotions. And yet, on the other hand, he's starting to put the puzzle pieces of God's plan together. You see, when he got those dreams all those years ago, he didn't get the context for what would happen. He didn't know what was going to happen leading up to those dreams. He just saw this, this moment in time with the brothers bowing down to him. And yet, he knows because of God's plan, he's in this position to save not only the people in the region, but his family. And though he would have never have chosen this path, he's become a better man for it. And he's been God's chosen deliverer for the people and his family. And so because of what's happened, Joseph was in the right place at the right time in order to save everybody from this famine. And so Joseph, he's quick on his feet. He begins to set up a test for his brothers. He kind of comes up with that plan on the fly. And he's putting pressure on them to see what kind of men that his brothers have become. Who are these guys? What has happened over the last 20 years? And so he accuses them of being spies in order to draw out some information from them without tipping his hand to who he is. And he accuses them of coming to see the nakedness of the land, which is, in other words, to see its vulnerabilities. Where, can, where is this land vulnerable? How might they be able to attack these storehouses and steal the grain? 
And the brothers respond by saying, no, 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 we're not spies. We're just here like everybody else to buy grain. In fact, we're all brothers. And we're brothers from the same father. And there's ten of us, and there's one back home, and there's one who's no more. And their, their defense is essentially, look, we've made this journey together as brothers, and the hope is that we'd be able to buy as much grain as we can afford and as much as we can carry back to save our family. So Joseph goes on and he says, By this you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you, the rest of you, remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. Or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. So Joseph says, okay, I've heard your story and I'm going to give you a chance to prove it. If there really is another brother back home, then you need to get him here. Bring him here and that will be my way to verify your story. If you're lying, if he doesn't come, you're all dead. If you're telling the truth, then you will live. And then Joseph tells them the terms of the deal. Nine of you are going to stay here in prison and one of you can go fetch their brother. And then he puts them in prison for three days so they can decide who will go and who will stay. You see, Joseph is, is applying more pressure to test them. Now, people have often wondered, why at this point doesn't Joseph just, you know, reveal who he is? And tell them the whole plan, like, hey, you know, like, jump to the end. What you guys meant for evil, God meant for good. Is this a case of Joseph tormenting his brothers to get back at them? Is this one of those scenarios where hurt people then hurt people? Is he taking revenge and vengeance in his own hands? And I'd submit to you, I don't think that's the case here. I think Joseph has shown himself over these years to be wise. He's been discerning throughout his life. And I think Moses is giving us a hint here that this is not a plan of vengeance, but a test in order to discern their character. So he's wondering, have my brothers changed? Are they, do they regret their actions? You see, what's amazing about this plan is that from their perspective, the brothers, they don't know that that's Joseph, that, that the governor of the land is really their brother. And so this test both serves to validate their story and to see what kind of men these guys have become. What would they do given the circumstances? You see, the pressure will reveal their character. So by putting him into prison, he's going to see, are they going to turn on themselves? Do they really trust one of them to go ahead and act and serve in the best interests of the family? And as we go on in verse 18, we find out that on the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. So he lets them sit in the tank for three days, and then he comes back to them, and he kind of changes up the terms. He says, look, if you're honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and then the rest can go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die and they did so so after three days joseph uh, changes the terms of the deal now he says instead of nine of you staying back only one of you has to stay back the other nine can bring back grain to uh, save your family but yet the stipulation remains. You still have to bring back your youngest brother. And the youngest brother will serve to verify their testimony. And then in verse 21, the brothers start talking amongst themselves. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. In that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. 
That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Now they did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. And then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he, that's Joseph, took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. So here's what happens. The brothers start talking to one another in Hebrew. And because there had been an interpreter there, they don't know that Joseph, they don't, they don't think Joseph can understand them. So they're, they're speaking rather candidly. And for the first time, we see an admission of guilt. What do they say? In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. And some more of the details of what happened all those 20 years ago come out. They say, didn't Joseph cry out in distress? Joseph begged for his life. But in their bitterness, in their jealousy, in their rage, they ignored his cries for mercy and they sold him into slavery. You remember Psalm 105 says that they put, uh, that his ankles were shackled. There was a collar put around his neck. And they watched as their brother was sold into slavery. See, they were never able to really shake the past. They've never been able to unburden themselves of the weight of their guilt. Just imagine that, 20 years with that looming in your rear view. And what's happening now is the pressure of the situation they're facing has brought that brokenness, that guilt to the surface. On some level, they understand this situation to be uh, directly connected to the sins of the past. You see that? Once they hear what's, what's happening, that they've got to bring Benjamin back. And remember, they know that's not a small feat. They know Jacob is not going to release Benjamin. They feel the weight of whoever stays behind is as good as dead as it relates to Jacob, right? He's not letting Benny go. And they feel that. And the pressure is mounting and it just draws that brokenness to the surface. And they say out loud, we are guilty. Our sins from the past are coming to, get, uh, to, to account today. They know they're going to have to give a reckoning for their sins. All the while, Joseph's hearing this. He's hearing his brothers and he's taking it in. And it strikes him to the core. The Bible tells us that Joseph begins to weep so much in fact he's got to turn away he doesn't want them to see him crying tip his hand let him know that he understands everything and reveal his identity so I take from that something about the way they're talking amongst themselves made Joseph feel like they were genuine that there was a real brokenness here and Joseph after he gathers himself after he wipes his tears, he chooses Simeon to stay behind while the others go back home to bring back their youngest brother. And in verses 25 to, to uh, 28, we find out that unbeknownst to them, Joseph not only supplies them with grain, but he has their, their money returned to them. So it's like they got the, the grain for free. And when they find out, they're terrified. They find out, listen... There's this guy who is harsh to us. He's imprisoned one of our brothers. And here we are. We've bought all this grain, but our money is back in our bags. And they're terrified. They think maybe this guy has set us up. So that no matter what we do, we're going to have to give an account. 
And they think that maybe God has ordained these turn of events as retribution for the sins of their past. So here's the question. Why does Joseph do all this? Why does he create this scenario? Why does Joseph add layer upon layer of pressure to them? And I think what he's doing is he's putting them in kind of a similar situation where they can commit the same sin to betray their brother and leave him for dead. Now, it's not the exact same situation, but it's putting them in a situation where they have to consider what we're going to do about our other brother. You see, with one brother staying behind in prison, the other nine can go back to their father and just come up with another elaborate story. Hey, father, it's the darndest thing. We were out again, and another one of your sons turned up dead. You know what I mean? And they can just, because they know Joseph's not going to give up Benjamin. And so they can just leave him, they can leave Simeon behind for dead and never confront the governor again. And so he's curious. Who are these men? Will they take the money and leave Simeon behind, never come back and leave him for dead? Will they do that? Or will they confront their father? Will they uh, muster up the courage to come back? See, it's Joseph's way to assess their character to see if they've changed. Now, at this point in the story, we, it's important for us to stop here and ask. It's important as you're reading the Bible to, to pause every once in a while and just ask, God, what am I supposed to do with this? What am I supposed to take away here? It's not merely we're getting a history lesson on what happened. We are, but these things are written for our instruction. What is God doing here in this chapter with the 10? There's lots of things, but here's one. God is using the pressure of this situation to draw their brokenness to the surface. You see, over the years, the brothers have tried to forget about their past sin against Joseph. They've tried to just move on. You know, go about their lives, have children, move on. They've tried to bury it and forget it. But I'd like to submit to you that guilt never stays buried or forgotten for long. See, it's in these final chapters in Genesis. I think Moses is trying to get us to see what Paul tells us uh, in Romans 8.28. Paul writes in Romans 8.28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. See, I think in, this, in these final chapters... We see this both on a macro and a micro level, that all things work together for good. See, at a, micro, uh, at a macro level, as we come to the end of Gen Genesis, everyone, both Jacob, his sons, will see how God used every detail of these last 20 years to not only bring preservation to this entire region, but also to bring their family into prosperity and security in the land of Goshen, where they will not only survive, but they're going to thrive and grow and multiply so that the next stage of God's redemption plan can happen. That's what's happening on a macro level. It's the big picture, the big story of redemption. But God isn't just interested in the big movements of history is also interested at a micro level on the individual details of our lives see on a micro level he's using every detail of this story for their own personal transformation it's not enough just to bring the family into the land of goshen into the land of plenty it's also to see them developed to see them grow and the pressure of this situation is forcing them to confront the sins of their past 
And we saw it earlier, their honest confession. They said, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. They realized that, that, that what they did wasn't just like morally a sin, that it was a sin against their brother. You heard that in their confession. It was personalized. They were calloused to his cries for help. They've seen that they've brought anguish to another image bearer. And I think they've come to a place of godly repentance. And certainly time will tell. We're, we're, we're capturing them in this one moment in their lives. Ultimately, God truly knows their hearts. That said, the pressing point here is not to get hung up on the validity of their confession, but to see they confess their sins and ask us, do we do the same? The truth of the matter is this. If you never come to a place in your life where you honestly and straightforwardly say, in truth, I am guilty, then you can't be saved. It's just one of those hard truths of the Bible. It's incredibly unpopular to say really, you know, black and white matters like this. This isn't a gray area. In truth, if you never come to the place where you personally own your sin, not in some distant way like we all make mistakes. You notice how we do that in our culture? We'll say things like, yeah, hey, no one's perfect. We, we kind of diminish the guilt of our sin. Yeah, I, I've done some things that are wrong. But we've got to go beyond just generalizing about our sin. And it's got to become personal where we say, in truth, I am guilty. I have wronged others. I have sinned against God. It's personally recognizing the truth of Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Where you come and say, I have sinned and I fall short of the glory of God. The stark reality is this. Our sin brings with it a guilt that cannot be buried. It cannot be hidden and it can't merely just be forgotten. The only way to deal with sin is to confront it head on. It must be brought before a holy and merciful God where in true confession it can be forgiven. If you try to bury or forget your guilt, eventually you will die under the condemnation and weight of your guilt. See, we don't just die because our number gets called or some tragic thing happens to us. We die because of sin. That's what kills us. Sin brings with it death. That's why we die. But if in true confession we come before a merciful God and we genuinely confess our sin, 1 John 1.9 tells us that this happens. If we confess our sins, he, that's God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, the Bible is straightforward and clear. If we confess our sins to God, he is faithful to forgive us our sins. Bearing it doesn't work. Trying to forget about it doesn't work. Brushing it off doesn't work. You have to confess your sin. And I think God in his grace and his mercy puts us in situations and circumstances with this kind of pressure 
to draw out the sins of our past, to draw out our brokenness, not to shame us, not to bring further condemnation because we're already condemned in our sins, but to draw it out so that we have to deal with it, so that we will deal with it at the foot of the cross. That's our first point. God uses pressure to draw our brokenness to the surface. Now let's keep moving in our text to see how God uses pressure to reveal our fears. Verse 29. When they, that's the brothers, came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told them all that happened to them. And as they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were terrified. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Now Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Now in this particular part of the story, we want to focus on Jacob and the pressure of this situation and how it reveals his fear. Again, if you trace uh, his story throughout Genesis, you see that Rachel was his beloved. And it's not, there's nothing wrong with loving your wife. That's actually a really good thing. But his love for her became inordinate. It, 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 was, it was more than it should. The, the ordering of his loves became disordered. It grew to an unhealthy level. And his favoritism of her led him to disregard his other wives. It led him to disregard his other children. And most of all, it led him to lose track of God's work in his life. And after Rachel's death, he loses sight of the promises of God and the trajectory that his family was supposed to be on. It became like the only thing that mattered to him was Joseph and Benjamin. And then in the wake of Joseph's disappearance and supposed death, he clings to the only thing he has left, Rachel, his only, belo- uh, uh, his only beloved son, Benjamin. So even though he's got ten other sons, it's as if they don't exist. And earlier in the chapter, remind you that he regarded them as expendable if harm should come to them on their journey. And when they return, they tell him everything that happened in Egypt. And they tell him, listen, we need to bring Benjamin back in order to secure Simeon's release. To prove their story, to get Simeon back. And what does Jacob say? Absolutely not. Do you hear what Jacob just did? He just basically signed the death wish for his son Simeon. He says, well, I guess we've lost Simeon. I'm not giving up Benjamin. And the scene ends in verse 38. He said, my son shall not go down with you. For his brother is dead. That's Joseph. And he's the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you were to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. He's like, if Simeon dies, I'll be all right. If Benjamin dies, I will die. I mean, just think what that does to his sons. To him, Simeon is as good as dead because he will not risk losing Benjamin. You see, what if you had to ask, what is Jacob's greatest fear? It doesn't take a PhD in theology to see it here, right? His greatest fear is losing Benjamin. Benjamin's the last reminder of his beloved Rachel. He says that if he were to lose Benjamin, he would die. And then there's that haunting phrase in verse 36 where he says this, all this has come against me. In other words, God has forsaken me. 
He's not fulfilling his good promises to me. Look what he did. He took my Rachel. He took my Joseph. And now he wants to take my Benjamin. He's lost track of the promises of God. His faith is wavering. Have you ever felt that way? Maybe you don't say it exactly this way, but you feel this way. All this has come against me. Just seems like all the circumstances in your life seem against you. And you can't see how God could possibly be in the details to bring about your good. Pastor Joel Beakey captures the moment well. He says, too often, we ignore the mercies of a lifetime under the bitterness of a period of a few temporary trials. See, he's ignored all the mercies, all the grace of God that he's been shown in his lifetime. All he can do right now is see his present circumstances. Now, as readers in the 21st century, we've got a vantage point that Joseph doesn't have. I mean, that Jacob doesn't have. We know Joseph's still alive, right? We know that Benjamin's going to be okay. And we know that in the most profound ways, God is for Jacob and for his family. We know that God is going to work out every detail for his good. And yet, this bitter season, these temporary trials, are meant to reveal Jacob's fears so that hopefully, by faith, he can bring those fears to God. See, the reality of this passage is that it ends with Jacob in this bitter place. See, I like, I like things to be tied up. I like, like, like movies and shows to, for everything to come to a, to a nice completion. This chapter just kind of ends with this bitterness, with Jacob saying, all this has come against me. There's no fairy tale ending. And I love that the Bible is, uh, is so real like that. Because our lives don't always end like that. There are chapters and stories in our life that just end like that. Where, where we're in these, these bitter places where the circumstances haven't been resolved yet. Now fortunately, Jacob's story isn't over. We'll see more of his story in the coming weeks. But I do think we're given this insight into Jacob's life to see the trajectory of inordinate love. See, when you love the, the, even the right things wrongly, it sets you on this kind of trajectory where your life is driven by this kind of fear instead of driven by faith. In other words, idolatry, because that's really what's going on here. He is in an idolatrous kind of way, elevated Rachel and her sons to an inordinate place. And it leads him to fear and bitterness, not faith and freedom. And the same thing is true for us. When we love the right things or even the wrong things wrongly, it leads us to be driven by this kind of fear. So Seven Mile, think about the pressures in your life right now. Think about the ways in which you might be able to identify with the characters in this story where it seems like circumstances are against you, where things aren't going the way that you might have wanted them to, and it feels like pressure. What if, instead of seeing them as inconvenient or uncomfortable, what if we saw these pressures as sovereign graces of God in order to reveal the condition of our heart? What if we said, Lord, what, what fears are you drawing to the surface that need to be dealt with? 
See, when those fears are, draw, are drawn to the surface, it reveals the order of our, the loves in our heart. It, it, it begins to make plain what often stays hidden. And when it's brought to the surface, we can see it for what it is and begin the process of repentance and healing. You remember what we sang it earlier and we also used it as our call to worship, Psalm 34. The psalmist says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. You want your fear? You want to be delivered from your fears? The psalmist says, seek the Lord. And then he says, to those who look on him, those who look on him are radiant. There's a brilliance about you. And their faces shall never be ashamed. Friends, seek the Lord. And he will deliver you from all your fears. And as you look on him, there will be a radiance about you. And you'll never be ashamed. See, God uses pressure to draw out our brokenness, to reveal our fears. And finally, let's see how God uses it to extend his grace. Now, we've already covered the text, but I want us to circle back and look at the other main character, Joseph. And I purposefully kind of skimmed over his part in the story. But I want you to think about that moment when Joseph comes face to face with his brothers. Remember the last time he saw them, they sold him into slavery and he was powerless to do anything about it. But now the power tables have turned, right? He's actually in a position to do something about What's happened? He's arguably one of the most influential and powerful people in the entire region. You know, Joseph could have just said the word and these guys would have been executed right there. No due process, no trial. Joseph has that kind of power and authority. He could have executed judgment right there. He could have had his day of justice right then and there. And he could have been all dramatic about it, pulled off his headdress, been like, I'm Joseph. Hang him. You know, he could have done this whole thing. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He wisely puts into motion a plan to figure out the kind of men his brothers have become after all these years. Don't forget, who did he name his firstborn son? Manasseh, which sounds like the Hebrew word for forget and he even says i'm naming him that because the lord has made me forget all my hardship now forget here doesn't mean like what happened all these years it's not amnesia what he's saying is the way the lord has shown me himself the way the lord has brought me through now that i see the fullness of god's plan it's as if it never happened what I've gone through, what I've, what I've experienced has so changed me that maybe I wouldn't choose to go through it again, but I'm also glad that I've gone through it. And I wouldn't change it, and I wouldn't have it any other way. And he has forgotten his affliction in the sense that he doesn't hold it against his brothers. He doesn't hold it against them. It's like their debt to him has been what? forgiven right it's not that you don't remember if someone owes you a great sum of money and you forgive that debt it's not like you've forgotten about it but you don't hold it against them anymore joseph does not hold the brother's sin against them anymore and so instead of resorting to outrage and violence he comes up with a plan that is going to lead to 
their reunion and reconciliation. What I want us to see here is that because of the pressures Joseph has experienced over these last 20 years, he has preemptively forgiven his brothers. So they didn't say, Joseph, will you forgive us? But in his heart, he has already decided to forgive them. See, the remarkable thing about this passage is he's not interested in revenge, but he's interested in reconciliation. He's already forgiven his brothers before they've even asked for it or even fully come to realize their guilt. Now, I think we also see something uh, that we need to remember here. He doesn't just uh, come out with it right then. What does he do? He comes up with a plan to ascertain and discern if full restoration and full reconciliation is possible. He wants to see if they've changed and, and, and what's going to happen over these uh, 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 and how the, the plan fold, uh, unfolds. He wants to see if they've changed. But everything about his plan is moving toward hopeful reconciliation and restoration. And what I want to tell you is that that's exactly what grace does to a person. See, Joseph has experienced immense grace in his life. And when you've received the love and grace of God, what it does is it frees you to extend that same kind of grace to others. And yet again, like we've seen week after week, Joseph has given us a taste and a picture of the love of Christ. The betrayed innocent one, the one who has every right to judge, the one who will bear in himself the weight of forgiveness, stands ready to forgive and open his storehouses that they might live and not die. See how that points to Christ? Jesus is the truly innocent one. And as the righteous one, he is the one who actually should be standing in judgment over us. But it's he who bears the weight of our forgiveness. He bears in himself the weight of our sin. And it's him who stands ready to forgive and open up his storehouses that we might have the bread of life, that we might live and not die. Friends, we live in a sin-soaked world and pressure in this world is simply inevitable. If you've got somewhere in the back of your mind where you feel like you're owed or entitled to a life of comfort and ease, I don't know where it might have come from, but it is a lie. In a sin-soaked world, pressure being uncomfortable, living under the, the effects of a sinful world. It's just inevitable. But because God is purposeful and merciful, he uses that pressure for our good. He uses it to bring about his redemptive purposes. He will draw out your brokenness so that it can be dealt with. He will uh, use it to reveal your fears so that you can bring them to him and be delivered from them. And he also uses pressure to create opportunities for us to receive his grace. Let's pray.